friends, if you have your Bible, please turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 6. 1 Timothy chapter 6. We are in our third week of Missions and Mercy March. Every year we take the whole month of March to consider the values of missions and mercy and justice. Uh, we wrapped up the missions focus last week. Today we are beginning a two-week focus on mercy and justice. Um, it's important for us to spend time considering this as a church uh, we want to be a church that preaches the gospel of Jesus Christ, but we also want to be a church that practices and pursues the implications of that gospel. Um, and so as much as it is um, important for us to uh, minister to um, the spiritual needs of our community, we also want to be a church that ministers to the physical needs of our community. Um, we believe this reflects the heart of Jesus Christ. And so we are looking this morning at 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 17 to 19 in a sermon entitled, Rich in Good Works. And so if you are able, I invite you to stand with me. Standing is an act of reverent worship to read and receive God's word. 1 Timothy 6, starting with verse 17 here now, the word of the Lord. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Please be seated. And would you pray with me once more? Father in heaven, we're thankful for your word, and we're thankful that by your spirit you speak to us. Um, we thank you that we do not have to strain forward and hear um, and try to discern the, the, the whispers of the spirit, uh, but when we open up your word, we know that you are speaking to us and you have a message for us. And so speak to us, O God, and Holy Spirit, illumine truth so that it connects with head and heart, and it will lead to transformation for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Here's a thought exercise I'd like to begin with. If the world had no access to the Bible, if the world knew nothing of Jesus Christ, what would they be able to deduce about the heart of Jesus in what they see from the behavior of Christians and the burdens of the church? If you had no written record of the ministry of Jesus, how would somebody, what would they conclude? Um, who would they believe Jesus ministered to in his earthly ministry? Who would they be able to identify or the types of people who sat near and dear to Jesus's heart? And I think for many, just looking at the behavior of Christians and the church at large, uh, many would be able to discern that Jesus has a heart for the lost. It's true that, you know, the American church stresses topics like evangelism and missions. We love passages like the Great Commission. So I think no, there's no doubt that people would know Jesus cares about the salvation of souls. But from mere observation of behavior, uh, not through what people confess to believe, but from how Christians live in this world, how the church relates to this world, uh, would those who don't know Jesus be able to conclude, be able to see that Jesus has an incredible heart, not just for the lost, but also for the least and the last in the world. 
Would others be able to discern from the attitude and the actions of Christians that they follow a savior who focused much of his public ministry on the poor and the paralyzed, the beggars and the blind, the orphaned and the oppressed? You see, a robust view of understanding Jesus's ministry shows that he had concern and compassion, not just for the lost, but also for the least and the last. Jesus came not just declaring the kingdom of God was here, but he came demonstrating that the kingdom of God was here. And so Jesus in his ministry heralded the truth, but he also healed people. Jesus's ministry was a balance of word and deed. He cared and ministered to the spirit and the body. And so if the church and Christians today are to accurately reflect the heart of Christ to the world, if we are to be the aroma of Christ, ambassadors for Christ, agents of Christ, then we must live in such a way that our saving faith in Christ translates into good works that display the heart of Christ. We are to show tender love and care and mercy and justice to the lost, to the least, and to the last. This is what I want us to focus on this morning today in 1 Timothy. And here is our sermon point. It is better to be rich in good works than to be rich with great wealth. But great wealth can give opportunities to do good works. Let me read that one more time. It is better to be rich in good works than it is to be rich with great wealth. But with great wealth can lead to opportunities to do good works. So that's kind of our summary. If you're walking away with anything, please walk away with that. So let's dive in and begin to consider this truth. We're reading from 1 Timothy. And 1 Timothy is a letter that Apostle Paul wrote to his protege, uh, Pastor Timothy. He was a young guy, Pastor Tim. Um, And in this letter, Paul is writing to Pastor Tim, and he gives six chapters of what pastoral ministry is like, what a healthy gospel-centered church uh, will look like. And he's writing his letter, all these various instructions. And at the very end, as he closes his letter, Paul gives Timothy one last message, a sort of PS at the end. And he writes this in verse 17. As for the rich in this present age. So Paul begins speaking about the rich in the present age. Now, if you're like me, you read this and you're like, well, you know, that's not me. You know, we think oh, he's addressing the rich and, you know, I may not be part of that echelon of society. I'm not in that bracket. I'm not in the upper class. We we do this all the time where uh, we read scripture and then we get um, to the people that addresses and when it doesn't kind of, you know, connect with us, we just, we read it, but we read it with less concern, with less fervor. For example, like earlier in 1 Timothy chapter 3, uh, we read deacons likewise must be dignified and If you're not a deacon, I mean, you read it because it's in the Bible, but you just read it with less fervor. Or chapter five, we read, let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age. And, you know, if you're a college boy and you're so far from being a widow, then you just kind of skim over it. And we do this because, you know, some passages of scripture, they speak to us. They speak to us just right where we are and others don't. But the problem is that we can read a passage like this where Paul's addressing the rich in the present age and we go, oh, that's not us. And so we kind of dismiss it. We don't pay as much attention to it. But here's the thing. When Paul addresses the rich in this present age, he's referring to those who are wealthy, those with wealth. But here's the thing about wealth. If you don't have as much as another person, it's always going to be easier to see them as wealthy and you as not, them as rich and you as not. 
And so you may not identify yourself as poor, um, but you see others as wealthy. And then about yourself, you say, well, I just do all right for myself. We live comfortably. But do you see how this kind of operates then on a sliding scale? Because uh, there's always going to be somebody with a bigger house than yours, a nicer car, more luxurious lifestyle, a higher paying job whose uh, retirement account is bigger than yours. And so if wealth means that, you know, you look over at other people, then you can always find somebody and say, well, they're the rich and I'm not. Um, Economically, sociologically, we have ways that, you know, we delineate the rich and the wealthy, don't we? So what, uh, what tax bracket do you fall in? What's the sum total of your assets? What's your net worth? Uh, we have the average household income, right, to compare ours against. And so in one way, yeah, we can delineate um, wealth in one sense, but, but I'm approaching wealth in a much more broad uh, way. I'm thinking of wealth just in terms of uh, time and space. Because if you think of wealth in terms of time and space, historically and geographically, those of us living in America in 2022, we are among the wealthiest people to have ever lived on this planet. That's just a fact. You may not feel that wealth, but it is true. Now, being wealthy, saying that you are among the rich, doesn't mean you have the nicest roof over your head. It doesn't mean you have the best food on your plate. But it does mean that you don't have to worry about whether there's going to be a roof over your head or worry about whether you have food on your plate. You know, generally speaking, most of us in this church have more than enough for the things we truly need. Um, the question is, can we really get to the point where we admit that? Can we come to terms with the reality that if you have more than enough for what you actually need, you are among the rich? Now, in order to get there, by the way, we need to really stop throwing around the word need as much as we like to use it. I need this. And we need to start adopting the word want to more accurately refer and call things as they are. Because here's the reality among those in this congregation, it may or it may not be the case that you have enough for the things you want. You may not, or you may have enough for the things you want, but many in this room, it is the case that we have more than enough for the things we need. And that distinction then gets us to read Paul's words in verse 17 and listen carefully because when he addresses the rich in the age, he is talking about you. Now, when Paul talks to the rich in the age, he basically brings up two things, two kind of warnings. Verse 17 continues, it says, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches. So if you are the rich among those in the present age, then you must listen to these two things. First, don't be haughty. Haughty means, you know, having an overly elevated view of yourself. The question is, why would a rich person be haughty? And a rich person would be haughty because it's easy to derive your sense of worth, your self-estimation on what you have and how much you have. It's very interesting that when we talk about your assets, we ask you, what is your net worth? Well, that's not my net worth. It's what I own, but it's not my worth. And yet it's tied together. It's easy to tie your identity to your riches, and that's why it's problematic. Because if your identity is based on what you have, if your worth is based on how much you have, then you're never going to want to give because it puts you at risk. Like, if your significance is grounded in having more than other people or having something nicer than other people, then why would you ever give and be generous if it means you're going to have less? You see, when that happens, you begin to realize you don't possess your riches. Your riches possess you. 
A haughty attitude makes uh, sacrificial or radical generosity undesirable. It's suicidal because what you are is what you have, and so you won't want to give. That's true. So Paul says, don't be haughty for those of you who are rich in the present age. But then he also says, don't set your hopes on earthly riches. Don't place your security in what you have in this present age. Now, if you notice, he calls it the present age because it's a passing age. This age, it's here today, but gone tomorrow. And if it's not gone tomorrow, it'll be gone the day after that. And the point Paul is making is that riches you have in this present age, it's not permanent. Don't be duped into thinking that what you have here and now will be what you have later and forever. And one of the problems Paul is identifying is that if your hope and your security is based on uncertain riches, then what are you going to do? If it's uncertain, you're going to guard it all the more. You're going to protect it all the more. You're going to hoard it all the more at all costs. And when you protect and you guard, then you won't be able to be open-handed. Basically, another way of saying that is you will be stingy with your riches and overly concerned and obsessed with what you have and what you don't have. And that's going to make sacrificial, radical generosity impossible. So that whenever money is talked about, your ears kind of perk up and your defensive mechanisms kick in. You have a list of excuses that are ready to be unloaded. Why? Because when money's talked about, we're talking more than just money. We're talking about future security. So Paul warns us of these two things. Now, I just want us to stop, pause, and reflect on this for a moment. Have you let earthly possessions, riches, and wealth determine either your identity and your worth or your security and your hope? Have any of you let the things that you own, the things you have, determine your identity, your worth, your value, your significance, or your security and your hope, your anchor? Maybe another way to get around this is to say, uh, do you find it difficult to be sacrificially and radically generous? And if you do, what could be the reason? Because that could be signaling something. If you see that, it's kind of like a rope and you begin tugging on it and you begin following it into your heart. What are you going to discover is really going on there? What is your relationship to your money and your wealth and your possessions? Now, after Paul warns the rich of the present age with these two things, he goes on to give an encouragement, just like Paul. So Paul, he writes, charge them not to be haughty nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but set your hopes on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Now, Paul's saying, how do you fight a haughty spirit? How do you fight misplaced trust, misplaced hope? And he says, you have to focus on God because Paul is basically saying, there's something about God that if you discover it, if you find out what it is, if you confront it, if you uh, are transformed by it, then your view, your attitude toward riches and wealth is going to change. If you discover something about God, your heart is going to change. Now, what is that? And I think what Paul is saying, if you discover this about God, God is rich, God is generous, God is good. God is rich, God is generous, God is good. So first we read, God richly provides. The God who you must confront, he is rich. He is of great wealth. Secondly, God is generous. It says here that God provides. He doesn't give you what you've merited from him. He doesn't reward you with what you've earned. He provides out of his generous heart. And then thirdly, it says that he richly provides everything to enjoy, meaning the gifts that he gives, they're good gifts. 
God is a good God distributing good gifts to his people. And so Paul is saying, don't be haughty. Don't put, misplace your hope in the treasures of the world, but set your hope on God who is rich, generous, and good. But when he directs your attention to God, he's not saying this, guys, look at God. Look how generous he is. Be like that. For Paul, God is not just this model or example of a figure you follow, right? Any religion can do that. Any religion could point you to somebody who's lived a good life and say, be like him. Do what he did. Try harder in that way. But that's not what Paul says. Paul says, look at God, and here's what you need to discover about God. Yes, he is rich, he is generous, and he is good. But look carefully. But on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Paul doesn't look to God as a model and example to follow. He says, look at God who is the source and the giver. God who has given us all these things. You are the recipients of God's mercy, his generosity. Do you see that? God has mercifully looked upon you and me, people who deserve nothing, and he has richly and generously provided for us. And when you look at the heart of God, you discover he's neither poor, nor stingy, nor evil. He is rich, generous, and good. And those of you who know him and trust him, you've received abundantly and amply from him. But here's the thing. When you look at God, it's easy to assume, oh, he's given so many things. He must have so much in abundance or excess. So God is merely giving out of convenience. But that's not the heart of God's giving. God did not give out of convenience. He gave it at a great cost. He did not give out of surplus. He gave out of sacrifice. Because when you see what it is that God ultimately gave us, his ultimate provision, it wasn't to address or meet our physical needs, but our deepest, most uh, direst spiritual need. God's provision addressed the problem of our sin and the consequences of it. So what God gave up in order to deal with our sin was his one and only son. It's not like, God had many sons and he said, well, you know, I have 12 sons. I can sacrifice one. It's hard for me, but I could sacrifice one. No, the scriptures tell us God gave gave us his one and only son, the unique eternal son, his only begotten son. God, out of his heart of generosity, gave us Jesus to deal with the problems we couldn't deal with, the problem of our sin. He who was rich came to us who were spiritually poor, impoverished, and bankrupt. Nothing could we bring to God. And so when we see Jesus and the gift of Jesus, what we're actually seeing is not just sacrifice. We're seeing the generous mercy of God, his rich provision that he would give to us at great cost to himself. You know, earlier we read in uh, 1 Timothy 1, Paul writes, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. God gave us his son in order to save us from our sin. Uh, 1 Timothy 2 says, the man Christ Jesus who gave himself as a ransom for all. This is what God's mercy is. Rich generosity in his son Jesus to us who were undeserving. And if you meet this kind of God, like if you've confronted, if you've encountered this kind of God, then your, your response won't simply be, I want to be like him. But it'll be, thank you. From the bottom of my heart, thank you. How can I live in grateful response? 
To which God responds, all that I've richly provided you with, I've given to you so that you may be rich toward others. All the mercy I've abundantly poured out on you, I've done it because I want you to care in mercy for the least and the last, the poor and the undeserving, the ones who are physically in the condition that you were spiritually. Needy, dependent. And this is why Paul goes on in verse 18. He says, uh, they are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. Uh, the point here that we see is, is it's, a, it's good to be rich in good wealth. I mean, it is good, isn't it? But it is far greater to be rich in good works. Now, Paul doesn't have this in mind. He doesn't have like, you scratch my back, I scratch yours. Right? Oh, you rich, give to the other rich. Uh, be generous to those who might be able to return the favor. No, Paul's talking actually about the disadvantaged, the vulnerable, the voiceless, the powerless, the needy, the least and the last who in no way can repay you. Paul's talking about that as the good work. And we know this because um, the chapter right before this, Paul's talking about widows. He's talking to widows and he defines good works for us. He gives us an example where he writes this in chapter five. Um, And having a reputation for good works, if she has brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, has devoted herself to every good work. So the good work here is ministering to the needs of others. Uh, when it says that this widow is bringing up children, that's not necessarily referring to her children, it's referring to orphans. This type of woman who engages good works is hospitable. She opens up her place for those who have no place to stay. She does the lowly task of washing feet. She cares for the afflicted whom nobody else will pay attention to. Right? This Paul calls devotion to every good work. And so in 1 Timothy 6, when Paul instructs us, do good to be rich in good works, he's talking about mercy ministry. That's what he has in mind. Meaning the needs of the least and the last and the underprivileged and the voiceless and those who are often overlooked and neglected. But then Paul goes further because he's an experienced pastor. He's an experienced preacher. He doesn't stop with uh, general abstract vague commands because he gets really specific. Because I think a lot of us could read this and go, yeah, I can, I can do good works. But then Paul specifies it because he elaborates to do good works, to be rich in good works. And then he says, to be generous and ready to share. Which kind of hits you. You wish that part wasn't there because Paul's saying the rich works that you're called to do involves the generosity with money. Involves sharing your wealth and your possessions. Because here's the thing. You can do good works with a stingy heart. You can volunteer time and energy and keep your wallet shut and have your true treasure never touched. Paul says, you who are rich with great wealth, you need to also be rich in good works by being generous and ready to share. And what Paul says here actually reminds us of this story. It's in Mark 10 where uh, a rich man goes to Jesus and he basically says, how can I inherit eternal life? You remember this story. He says, how can I inherit eternal life? And Jesus lists out the commands. And it turns out the guy has lived a pretty uh, upstanding life. Uh, He's kept the law since his youth. He's been obedient to the law But then what happens next really exposes him because we read in Mark 10, 21. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Basically, Jesus says, okay, you've done all those good things. That's really good for you. You've kept the law, but are you ready to be rich in good works with your great wealth? Are you ready to be generous? Are you ready to share? 
And when Jesus asks that question, he is exposing this man's heart. The fact that this man's heart was not gripped by God's generosity toward him. Because what do we read? We read this. Sadly, because he was not ready to be generous or to share, we read that disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. Now, did you notice what Jesus required of him? Jesus was basically saying to this man, do good, be rich in good works, be generous and ready to share. But not just toward your family, not just toward your friends, not just toward those who have influence in society, who can scratch your back because you scratch them, but to who? He says, the poor, the least and the last, the undeserving. Not just those with great spiritual needs, but to those with great physical needs. Let that sink in. You see, dear friends, your heart will either be gripped by earthly riches and money, or it'll be gripped by God's rich generosity toward you in Jesus. What is the mark that you've encountered the gospel and actually been transformed? It's the rise of merciful good works toward the least and the last. Now, here's the thing. The great German reformer, Martin Luther, who was a staunch defender of justification by faith, right? That we're not saved by any good works. Luther went on to write this. God does not need our good works, but our neighbor does. Now think about that. God does not need our good works, but our neighbor does. You see, an emphasis on being rich in good works has nothing to do with our merit. It's not saying be rich in good works because that's how you're going to merit your way into heaven, but be rich in good works because you have received mercy from God and now you're called to show mercy to others, especially the least and the last, our neighbors who need it. And so if the gospel has actually captured your heart, uh, how can you respond? I just want to suggest throughout three things for you to begin thinking about. Three ways for you to do good, to be rich in good works, generous and ready to share. The first is this. You can do that personally through the opportunities that organically and naturally come your way. Prayerfully ask God, open my eyes, open my ears. Help me to be willingly compassionate to those that God sends into my life, those whom I meet and run across as the needs present themselves. Lord, help me to be ready to do good, be rich in good works, generous and ready to share with the needs that come my way. The second thing you can do is personally search out organizations, service opportunities. And it's best to actually do something that addresses concerns and issues that has burdened your heart, burdened your heart particularly. There are all these various areas of mercy and justice that you can pursue And your own life should begin to reflect that, a desire to actually be rich in good works. I have a a burden for orphans. I have a burden for adoption. I have a burden for the poor and the hungry. I have a burden for human trafficking. I I have a burden for these things. And then you go and you search out, and and, and that will lead you to to volunteering or advocating or spreading awareness or, or giving or learning, praying. And here's the third way. You can participate in and with the church when the church identifies avenues and opportunities for us congregation wide to pursue our core value of mercy and justice. 
Maybe you don't have needs coming your way. Maybe you don't know where to begin to look. And I praise God that we have a mercy committee who's begun to do that work for us as a church, identifying local needs for us to begin to respond. And so after this, um, after our response song, we'll have the mercy committee come up and share with you the plans for the year. Maybe in hearing that, that's something you can say, well, I'm going to commit to that. I'm going to put that in my calendar. I'm going to give to that cause. Let me just conclude with this. If God's generous heart of mercy uh, toward us compels and transforms our hearts, uh, then we realize that good works do not become obstacles, but they become opportunities. Oh, I have to do this good work. No, no, no. I get to do this good work. We become people rich in good works with the riches of our great wealth. And we desire to do so. Then the world will know that we follow a Savior who ministered with mercy and justice, not just to the lost, but to the least and the last in the world. And in that way, we will exude and reflect the heart of Jesus Christ. Let's pray.